Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. We are podcasting from the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing. I'm pleased to report that my comrade Peter Lim is making a full recovery following his arm surgery. You'll hear from him shortly. The featured guest on today's program is Patrick Bond. Born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, educated in the United States and working in South Africa for nearly 20 years, Patrick Bond is a political economist, an expert on eco-social policy, and the director of the Center for Civil Society at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. We sat down with him recently during his visit to East Lansing in connection with the release of his new co-edited book entitled Climate Change, Carbon Trading, and Civil Society. And while speaking with Patrick, I was reminded of the powerful words of Wangari Mathai, the 2004 Nobel Peace Laureate from Kenya and the founder of the Green Belt Movement. In her acceptance speech, Wangari Mathai said, and I quote, it is 30 years since we started this work. Activities that devastate the environment and societies continue unabated. Today we are faced with a challenge that calls for a shift in our thinking so that humanity stops threatening its life support system. We are called to assist the earth to heal her wounds and in the process heal our own. Indeed, to embrace the whole creation in all its diversity, beauty, and wonder. This will happen if we see the need to revive our sense of belonging to a larger family of life with which we have shared our evolutionary process. In the course of history, there comes a time when humanity is called to shift to a new level of consciousness, to reach a higher moral ground, a time when we have to shed our fear and give hope to each other. That time is now. Peter Lim. I'm Peter Elagi. And our special guest today is Professor Patrick Bond, uh, one of Africa's most uh, remarkable and outstanding political economists and, uh, in my opinion, a true scholar activist. He's a research professor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal School of Development Studies, where he directs the really vibrant and fascinating centre uh, for civil society. Um, has an extensive uh, training in political economy and geography from Johns Hopkins, University of Pennsylvania and Swarthmore, and has written really very widely on Southern Africa, both Zimbabwe uh, and uh, South Africa. But today we're going to focus on some really terribly urgent issues, in including climate change and Africa as a victim of the regime of carbon trading. And also we might look at questions of whether Africa is still being looted. Some of Patrick's uh, most recent books are uh, entitled Climate Change, Carbon Trading and Civil Society, Negative Returns on South African Investments, uh, published by University of KwaZulu-Natal Press in 2007, and also Looting Africa, the Economics of Exploitation from Z Books and UKZN Press in the year before and a few years earlier, a fascinating book on the Thabo Mbeki administration called Talk Left and Walk Right. And I understand, uh, Patrick, that you also have another work about to come out with Tandika Makandawiri. Well, uh, UNRIS, the UN Research mm. Institute on Social Development, has uh, helped us with uh, um, a project on looking at uh, initiatives from civil society to counteract 
South Africa's foreign policy. It's quite exciting to look at foreign policy bottom-up, uh, a book co-edited with MSU PhD graduate uh, Ashwin Desai, so that'll be out later this year. Right, and there's another fascinating story there about the politics of education with Ashwin Desai, if we have time. Uh, maybe we could start, uh, and, and as you just mentioned, with civil society and social movements, we'd like to also uh, talk about them. But maybe you could start by just outlining some of the primary issues to do with climate change and carbon trading as they affect Africa and maybe also the, the global connection here. Mm, well, it's, uh, it goes without saying, I think everyone's aware that the climate change uh, disaster includes droughts and floods uh, that are uh, most uh, adversely affecting lowest income countries and Africa stands very exposed with uh, large uh, portions of the continent suffering desertification and uh, water sh uh, shortages, but of course other parts uh, suffering right now, like Mozambique, uh, uh, tremendous flooding. And uh, the uh, estimates of from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of about 90% of the uh, agricultural yields under threat uh, within this century by uh, uh, rising temperatures uh, it makes us, I think, all implicated. I think we should start by saying, in fact, the North, and I certainly grew up in the North and I live in Durban in conditions of the first world, the North is really implicated in using Africa as a sink. Uh, in other words, the big uh, rainforests uh, uh, taking the ecological space uh, that the, the North kind of grabs by emitting so much CO2 and other greenhouse gases and, and, and African uh, uh, rainforests are, are recycling the CO2 but doing so without being paid and compensated. And it's in that sense part of the overall looting of Africa of its natural resources, timber, certainly the minerals and the petroleum makes uh, the continent very vulnerable because uh, big corporations and their allies and venal governments have uh, really wrecked the lives of most of the people uh, and that, that's continuing. And so it's all of these things put together. Add one other ingredient, the Kyoto Protocol, which is the um, 1997 agreement that Al Gore, then Vice President, was mandated to go and sign, but he did a deal in the process in which, instead of really cutting back the emissions, northern companies could trade away uh, their ability. They can keep polluting, but they can buy into little projects into the south. And we have some in South Africa that are disasters. So. Altogether, we've got a, a, a major mess, and the North owes the South a whole lot. Can you explain how carbon trading works? Mm -hmm. The carbon trade that Al Gore um, was so enthusiastic about in 1997 in Kyoto, which you know he promised that then the U.S. would sign on to Kyoto. Of course, it didn't. But uh, it was to, it's basically uh, um, um, the principle that uh, if you uh, keep polluting at the uh, same levels, you get a cap and bring those down uh, lower, but you actually then want to exceed uh, what you've been allocated, you're able to go into the markets. And there are two types, really. One in the north, the European emissions trading system is most advanced, and then the uh, south has uh, clean development mechanisms and other offsets. And so if you feel guilty, for example, as, as I often do about flying around the world, you can go and buy some trees. Well, the problem is these aren't really win-win situations, and the ways in which um, both the European emissions trading system has fallen apart and become a, a real site of uh, all kinds of scamming, and uh, the volatility of the market is notorious, and uh, it's just like the same kind of guys that gave us Enron, securitization of energy, or doing or putting this kind of market together out of, out of nothing. So it's not working according, you know, by all accounts, the financiers, the, the business media, but it's particularly uh, pernicious in the third world where huge tree plantations are being put put up, for example, in places like Brazil, plantars notorious, which have 
quite a serious deleterious effect on the local environment. And in Durban, where my rubbish goes is a good example. It's where methane uh, from my rubbish that rots uh, gets uh, converted into electricity. And uh, there's a cost to that, and the World Bank comes in to subsidize it. Um, and in uh, making that subsidy, it's able to sell emissions reductions credits to northern polluters. problem is that for the biggest of these uh, proposed projects, it would keep a dump in a black neighborhood open when the uh, many of the neighbors have said, look, this, this dump's giving us cancer and should be shut down. So this is one of the sites where the enclosure, or we call it the privatization of the air, the, the commons being up for sale to the extreme. So even the air itself is being carved up and sold for the sake of this carbon trade to allow the northern companies to keep polluting. That also then has this effect on local populations, similar to enclosures throughout history in which people find their own resources under attack. So the privatization of air, the ultimate in privatization that most of us probably thought could not ever happen. And what about the response of uh, civil society? You mentioned the existence of this mega dump in Durban. How have the local residents and civil society responded? Well, one, one very uh, active um, local community resident, Sajida Khan, uh, passed away last July. She uh, was a, a cancer victim from, from the dump, and the uh, dump staying open well beyond 1994. It should have been closed as the local uh, liberation movement the African National Congress had promised. So her death, um, nevertheless, uh, I think inspired a lot of uh, people to keep working to prevent that uh, dump from becoming a, a World Bank project. Um, she'd campaigned and, and intimidated the World Bank, so in 2005, when it came around to start investing, it actually left the huge dump, Basasa Road, the biggest dump in Africa, alone for, for now. Um, but I think what she'd done, uh, Sajida Khan and, and the network that emerged around here, the Durban Group for Climate Justice, an international network, with members such as Friends of the Earth International and uh, a lot of very important um, institutes. The Institute for Policy Studies in the U.S. has a sustainable energy and environment uh, network. The Doug Hammarskjöld Foundation, Corner House, the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam, and lots of third world activists, Brazilians and Thai, and they've uh, put together the core of the argument against carbon trading, which uh, uh, is a book available from Doug Hammarskjöld Foundation. But also importantly, we're part of uh, something in Bali. You remember in uh, December there was a uh, another meeting of the Kyoto Protocol uh, Conference of Parties. And outside the meeting, pr protesters included uh, very, very good uh, eco-justice activists. So the global justice movement, uh, big names you'd probably know, like Walden Bellow from Focus on the Global South in Bangkok, um, uh, matching up with their counterparts in the environmental movement who have been unsatisfied with mainstream environmentalisms uh, being sucked into this carbon trading. Uh, most of the major groups have, have bought into it um, myopically, I think. Uh, maybe in some cases because of conflicts of interest, they're personally involved in carbon trading scams. Now, I think those um, processes mean that uh, we finally, uh, in Bali, put together Climate Justice Now, uh, in which environmental justice activists finally began to say, yeah, the market is a big threat to us. And the climate, uh, the global justice movement, the people maybe starting out with Zapatismo in Mexico, but Seattle protesters against the World Trade Organization, and so many other sites since, they've kind of said, yeah, the climate is a really serious issue. We must work on that as well. How does this then all relate back to uh, other African countries? And I was not so long ago in Lagos, and the pollution is pretty bad there. And I can think of also places like Mexico City, where the, uh, the fumes are incredible from the cars. Um, to what extent, uh, and there was a World Social Forum in Nairobi recently, to what extent have these 
very vibrant uh, uh, groups of um, social and civic activists in South Africa being able to network with uh, counterparts in other African countries. And can we say that they are starting to make some advances in applying pressure both to African governments and governments in the north and powerful institutions, uh, corporate or intergovernmental? Well, indeed we can, and uh, the uh, uh, most exciting innovation, in my view, would be the um, rise of a new demand that's come from organically from community struggles in places like the Niger Delta, where uh, the network called Oil Watch is helping to generalize this from a very strong non-governmental organization, environmental rights action in Port Harcourt. But you can think of those women of the Niger Delta, for example, who take off their clothes to block the um, access to the plants and, and sit down and, and, and really disrupt the um, the major corporates there, the Chevrons and Shells and so forth. Those uh, Shell directly implicated in Ken Sarawiwa's murder. People never forget that. And so they've made a, um, a slogan, keep the oil in the soil, um, that I think is actually um, going around the world in Quito, Ecuador, for example, Acción Ecologia, a great NGO, has been promoting this and persuaded the president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa, to take uh, the, the Asuni National Park's $12 billion of estimated oil reserve and leave that permanently in the soil, and they're looking for compensation for that. And I think around the, the world where there's major oil sites, uh, Athabasca, tar sands in Alberta, Canada, or in Norway, a lot of the progressive groups are out there saying, leave the oil in the soil, so let's get a supply-side solution to this climate change problem. And I think a lot of important um, African innovations in, um, well, creative uh, uh, resistance to extraction of natural resources more generally from Basarwas and uh, Bushmen who are uh, resisting De Beers and the World Bank's uh, diamond uh, looting of Botswana to Limpopo province where platinum or the wild coast of South Africa where titanium, both cases big uh, South African and Australian corporations, London corporations, under attack from local communities. So when you see a film, for example, Blood Diamond, where you really get that sense of just how bad Africa does uh, suffer from multinational corporate exploitation. Well, there's always uh, resistance, and although that film didn't really uh, give you much of a taste of it, I found across Africa, and finding in the Africa Social Forum, in places like the Water Privatization Network that sprang up there with over 30 countries having very strong groups represented, they are having an impact. They've played a role in Johannesburg getting rid of Suez, the big French company, or uh, in Dar es Salaam, uh, Bywater, running uh, with tail between legs back to, to London uh, with the government and the civil society uh, fighting them the whole way. So I think there are lots of amazing struggles. Accra, Ghana has a wonderful campaign against water privatization that partly is targeting a, a South African company that's a public company, Rand Water, that's there, and they have good, strong allies with uh, Johannesburg groups. And you could find in these resources uh, from timber and uh, water and uh, the minerals, the petroleum, tremendous groups, and we're trying in our little center for civil society to get a journal with uh, the Open Society uh, Initiative of Southern Africa, Southern Africa Resource Watch, to really document and give support to people who really want their resources to uh, to be used well or to, to remain in the soil if they've got venal looting elites who take the money and run, or big corporations that never plow back any of the, of the profits. If I could uh, focus in on South Africa, uh, Patrick, uh, yesterday in your talk you mentioned that South Africa has the world's cheapest power for corporations, and you also put up a statistic on your slide that indicated that South Africa emits more CO2 per person than the United States of America, which of course mm -hmm. is considered to be the greatest. By a factor uh, of about 20. In by a yeah. factor of about 20, uh, and that South Africa produces uh, just under half of Africa's total emissions. 
Now, uh, some critics of, uh, of some of the initiatives and, and civic struggles for social justice and, and clean air that you've mentioned have pointed out that actually these initiatives are counterproductive because they slow down economic growth or potential for growth, which would then help to uplift poor communities across South Africa. Uh, what's your take on that kind of perspective and critique? Well, yeah, indeed, Peter, that's where um, the status quo forces the minerals energy complex, as it's called, uh, the kind of crony capitalist uh, group of big mining houses and the energy uh, industry with the new state elites. They've certainly argued that uh, growth will trickle down. It hasn't worked uh, for 14 years. Uh, unemployment has uh, basically doubled since liberation and uh, inequality has gotten worse by, by all accounts, poverty increasing. So I think the trickle-down argument in the growth employment redistribution strategy, homegrown structural adjustment, has been um, unveiled as uh, f full of full of the typical fibs. But in the energy sector, it's, mo it's even more extreme because we've also been suffering uh, brownouts and load shedding or blackouts, rolling uh, cutoffs uh, that affected large chunks of uh, residential, even the white upper-class uh, residential community, paralyzed the traffic systems as, as uh, traffic uh, lights go out. Um, but uh, some of the companies that have been relatively unhurt uh, include those with long-term, very cheap uh, uh, power supply contracts, the aluminum smelters, to be precise. And those uh, four uh, major smelters, plus one or two uh, online now, that are just uh, being constructed, those are really where the huge waste of electricity and uh, really cheap electricity, um, where the deals were made dating back about 15 years. And um, there's very few jobs in those, and the profits go to uh, the foreign corporate headquarters. Even Anglo-American now has a financial headquarters in London. Right. Um, and so we'd uh, certainly argue for taking those smelters offline while there's a, a, an energy shortage and to deal with this huge coal-powered um, addiction. And there's, of course, also an, a nuclear uh, a construction program, which is highly dubious as well. So to cut back on smelting where there's um, Australian bauxite coming in, it's not even local uh, ingredients, just the cheap coal that uh, zaps the bauxite with uh, very, very cheap electricity. And meanwhile, low-income people are uh, facing very high price increases, over 100 percent. They have a very, very small amount of free electricity, 50 kilowatt hours per household per month that goes after three or four days. And so a, a real rejigging of the tariffs, the, the, the price structure, and the availability is what uh, the social movements have been calling for. When they, uh, when they can't get it through policy arguments or in the courts, as they've tried, then they often uh, go to the extreme of actually stealing it. When their electricity is cut off, they reconnect the electricity illegally. The Soweto Electricity Crisis Committee is well known for um, bringing people with insulation to wrap up the wire so there's no electrocution so far. Um, but to help grannies, for example, who've run out of electricity, who desperately need some, and of course it's women who are most adversely affected when the electricity is cut. And so I think liberating the electricity is one of the ways in which the South Africans are teaching people to, when there's too much commodification, maybe as Karl Polanyi, the, the, the great theorist uh, of, um, of uh, the, the great transformation in, in capitalism, when, when capitalism goes too far and there's too much of a market, well, there's a double movement, a, a backlash against um, the, the market and people uh, find different ways to decommodify. Hopefully we can get that codified in policy in uh, particularly water and electricity, free antiretroviral medicines, access to land and housing and education and other health care. Uh, while it's still a set of promises and a constitutional rights discourse but not real, people are going to resort to the, these kinds of tactics. And um, one interesting aspect here is the port of Durban. Um, that perhaps we don't often think of uh, the way in which ports can be polluters. 
and uh, from your wonderful lecture yesterday, you raised this issue, and maybe it's also an issue in places like Lagos uh, uh, or some other African ports. Um, maybe you could elaborate just a little bit about uh, what's special about Durban in terms of these problems of climate change and, and pollution. Mm -hmm. Although the bureaucracy likes to think that the municipal officials, whether water or environment, that they're cutting edge, they get awards and recognition. Uh, it's actually a bit of a disaster zone uh, environmentally, and one of the reasons is uh, uh, the, the port is uh, not even considered in the construction of Durban's carbon footprint and to sort of look at the huge amount of shipping. It's the biggest port in, in Africa and particularly in uh, in relation to these uh, um, containers that come in uh, fueled uh, on ships from East Asia with very uh, dirty bunker fuel that cr creates a lot of CO2. The impact of the imports has been pretty devastating to local manufacturers of, of appliances and electronics and clothing and footwear and apparel. Um, and uh, textiles, and these are the sorts of things that uh, uh, had been labor-intensive and, and uh, you know, decent salaries were paid, and now they're uh, deindustrializing. So um, I think in all these regards, as we put the environment in and look at the broader costs of South Africa's free market policies and uh, accession to the World Trade Organization and uh, engage in, in, in sort of uh, export-led strategy, uh, we'll start to find a lot more costs, including the environmental costs, and hopefully start to factor them in. That's one of the demands to really rethink the economic policies that made President Thabo Mbeki so very unpopular in recent years. Maybe one in that regard, one final question, um, and that's about the future and your estimates that can these uh, vibrant uh, social movements, these uh, uh, activist groups uh, in South Africa and across Africa and that, ha that are linking up globally, can they effectively apply pressure on the, on the main players, the, especially the governments of the North, but also the governments of Africa and the transnational corporations? Uh, in other words, uh, is progress being made in, 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 in tackling these from below? Uh, and maybe even, I mean, this is uh, coming back to the realm of politics, um, are there uh, opportunities, do you think, uh, for African governments to start to be more proactive in this regard? Lots of opportunities. There's no question that uh, the world is a, a, a different place than what the, the very peak of the Washington consensus about a decade ago before the East Asian crisis, and there's lots more uh, space uh, room to maneuver and, and alliances to be made, especially with Latin American governments. You know, I think the African social movements have been slower to start. The repression is more intense. Take a look at Zimbabwe, where the progressive forces there just get just hammered every time they come up asking for democratic um, space and human rights, uh, much less for social and economic justice. And uh, so it's been, a, it's been a quite hard across Africa to find uh, strong ideologically motivated progressive uh, forces in civil society the way we saw uh, emerge in the last 15 years in Latin America that then turned from social movement organizing and labor movements to, and uh, church, progressive church networks and all to building new political parties of the left that then take power in elections. That, of course, is the logical trajectory. Um, there are very few places in Africa we can say uh, have got yet a coherent ideology that would potentially be a new political party on, on the left. But, you know, South Africa will have such a, a formation. It looks like we've been set back a little bit by the rise of Jacob Zuma as a bit of a distraction for trade unions and the Communist Party. I, I don't think he's going to take them to the left. He's already made clear to his friends in Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum in January that he's going to maintain the same neoliberal strategy. So I think instead um, what the movements are doing is developing the issues. And that's really great because so many times movements have come to power 
prematurely without having uh, strong uh, democratic traditions in their base and having thought through what they really want. And I think at least we can uh, posit that through World Social Forum type of arrangements where Africans are getting together and meeting across borders and hopefully linking their issues up so they're not just bound up in one issue after the other. When they do really uh, put their mind to it, like the Treatment Action Campaign did against um, biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world and the South African government, well, they had al uh, alliances here in the U.S. with the g wonderful network called ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, Medicines Sans Frontieres. And those kind of alliances meant that uh, they could uh, involve uh, people around the world in protests at big pharmaceutical companies and uh, finally beat back the patent uh, monopolies and, and get generic access and uh, cheap and free, indeed free access. 450,000 South Africans now have AIDS medicines that didn't before and will live much longer as a result. So we do have enough of the small short-term gains, and that's a huge one, in fact. If, if in the States you ever get another anthrax attack in envelopes, you'll be happy that people have been able to open up uh, the rights to medicines that are otherwise under patent, and, and that's the sort of thing that, that has huge historic importance, but also that link the issues and, and the demands of, of activists at the base to national and continental struggles. So I think the World Social Forum is probably where those will continue if the WSF becomes the base for uh, a little bit more serious politicking rather than just open space for you know, talk shop, NGO, sort of trade, trade fair. That's a big struggle between the social movements at the base and to some extent what are called <laughs> suit and tie NGOs who have more um, uh, maneuvering power and, and resources. And I think it's one that uh, all your listeners should pay attention to, whether uh, the big social um, disruptions, the IMF riots that got rid of dozens of governments can become more sustained and more uh, secure as they make uh, demands for social justice that are more durable and link th these up, hopefully become strong political parties, uh, true to their democratic uh, traditions and and uh, take power. And uh, we're following, of course, uh, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, to see how, how far along that track they can go. I think environmentalism really has a tremendous appeal to build these cross-regional, cross-class uh, networks, because who's against clean water and clean air? Mm. Very few people, albeit powerful ones. Uh, Patrick Bond of the Center for Civil Society at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, thank you very much. Peter, thank Peter you. really great to be with you. MSU has uh, got a great reputation for being a resource, and uh, your show and the matrix and all of the data you've gathered, uh, we all check it regularly. So thanks for being such a good uh, help to everyone. Well, that brings another installment of Africa Past and Present to a close. We hope you've enjoyed it. Join us again in two weeks for a fascinating conversation with historian Bob Edgar of Howard University, a conversation that was originally scheduled for this week. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Chris Johnson, Ryan Blyton, and Alicia Shiel. For more information about this show and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. If you have any comments or suggestions for future shows, please send us an email message at africa.podcast 
at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.